and welcome to the second lecture of the first week of the 1991 Rare Book School. I believe it's something like lecture 200, uh, 316 or 317. I know that Sue Gosens is lecture 325, so you can count back and figure out what this one is. It's a particular pleasure to welcome Jack Parker, well known to all of you, and no stranger to these shores, to speak this evening, Red Canaries in a Cage Too Small. Welcome. Thank you, Terry. Master of Brief Introductions, one of the most appreciated people in the world, I'm sure. I'm honored at the invitation to be here, present these remarks this evening, and honored indeed to have been a part of this program since its beginning. I feel like I was present at the creation and I'm still here. And as I came up in the elevator, I thought, more than honored, I am flattered that somebody would produce such a beautiful poster. I don't know who did that, but wherever you are, thanks for making the poster possibly better than the speech. And I, I do appreciate that. This was prepared. <laughs> this was prepared as an after-dinner speech and was did, delivered originally as an after-dinner speech. I, I hope it does reasonably well as a before-dinner speech as well. Uh, I will try to address some of the issues confronting us as rare book and special collections librarians. I do not expect uniform concurrence in my views, except in the larger view that we'll be talking about some things that probably all of us agree we should be thinking about here in the last decade of this century. Two generations ago, a Minnesota literary critic of some distinction, a man named Oscar Firkins, was roughed up a bit in one of the New York newspapers and he responded that the headwaters of the Mississippi took no dicta from the foot of the Hudson. You may wish to reverse, may wish to reverse that metaphor here this evening. I hope you'll be forgiving of the title of this effort to say something about rare books and special collections in our time. It sounds very mysterious, it really isn't. It's rooted in some autobiography which I hope will also be forgiven. We are all the outcomes of where we have been. And when we have been wherever we have been long enough, and I've been that long, we tend to look back and find roads that led us to where we are now, intellectually and otherwise. The autobiographical part I will defend at least as one part of my talk I think I know something about. In my childhood in North Dakota, a village there, there was a lady who raised canaries. Her name was Adelaide Johnson, good North Dakota name. She was the mother of my best friend. She raised canaries, which at the beginning I thought were raised for singing, and sing they did. But more, they had great variety of coloring, and breeders like Mrs. Johnson found that even more important. She started, I recall, with one male bird, which sang beautifully. She borrowed a female from a friend, and soon there were some little ones. And as I grew toward my teens and into and through my teens, the numbers of birds multiplied. They came and went in the mail to conventions, to contests, to meetings, in the back porch, journals on canary raising piled up. 
the early bright yellows, and I remember that first one is sort of the color of the wall here almost, were gradually replaced by deeper colors. That was important to Mrs. Johnson. They became more like orange canaries. And the object Adelaide told us, and kids as we sat around talking about these things, the object was to get a red one, which she said genetically was impossible. Now I remember her saying that. You never get the red one, Jack. But I tell you, Jack, in trying for the red one, you see so many beautiful birds. I think that's when I started to become a book collector. <laughs> if you can't get the first edition, there are some mighty good second editions all the way down the line. And so her little flock grew because she loved them all. The house was full of birds. Her house was literally a big bird cage full of bird cages. And Harry, her husband, I think at times wondered if there would be place for him after all. But eventually she gave up birds. And I think she gave up because she could not bear to get rid of the yellow ones. She loved it too much. And there is all of us, in all of us, I suppose, that conflict and that desire between doing it to perfection and doing it all. In the spring, we order more seeds than we have room to plant. I find my metaphor goes more and more to agriculture as I revert to my origins, maybe all this being a library and it's sort of a facade, I'm really just kind of a farmer. We plant more than we can manage. I think I've got 15 tomato plants out there laboring in the sun in Minnesota doing their thing on a cucumber patch, quarter of the size of this room. Uh, we, we can't care for it all sometimes. And then we have abundance in the summer and we deliver things up and down the street to friends and former friends I fear. <laughs> We go to flower shows, the state fair, county fairs, to look at what is good. Just the just right head of cabbage. We go to see what is the finest of what is grown. And how do we know? <clears throat> how do we know what is the finest? Something out of the past tells us. The long accumulation of human experience in any endeavor, comes to recognize quality and degrees of it. The nearly red canary, the nearly black tulip. So let us think about quality, a subject that offends a lot of people, because there's a certain air of elitism associated with it. And to those of us who are democratic in spirit, all of, in this, all of us in this room, I presume, there's a dilemma to deal with. And it seems to me that is where we are finding ourselves at this time in our profession. Democratic Republicans, small letters, please, contemplating the veneration of aristocrats or the embracing of the masses. Many of us, many of us have lived through a great democratic revolution in the past 50 years the enhancement of civil rights for minorities, the recognition of justice due women, 
the movement toward acceptance of the right of sexual preference, the decline of old established authoritarianism in all aspects of our society. And these changes have brought to our attention a range of literature and subjects we did not contemplate before 1940. In broadening our curatorial vision, we have inevitably swept into it much that is commonplace. That is not to denigrate it. We have given our love to some yellow canaries. In academe, it has often been said these years of revolution have democratized our grading system so that we are less scrupulous in weeding out the deficient student. We give less attention to those who are truly superior. Surely with students we have come to recognize potential for achievement and we have nurtured it, we have polished those diamonds in the rough, possibly to the detriment of the high achievers and I don't think we are sorry for that. Similarly in our quest for social history our collective roots, we have gone searching for the lives of nameless people, of their interests and their influence. History is no longer a chronicle of the rich and the famous, powerful. Like the supermarket, which itself is a product of this revolution, our history is a basket filled from every shelf. And all of these shelves of humanity have a literature by and about, and all are important, to an understanding of our history and culture and its place in the larger history and culture of Western civilization and the world. And so, as we examine our collective past, we ask what our ancestors read for books of all kinds. Books are surely the best road back to where we came from. The answer, of course, is that like ourselves, they read a lot of pretty mediocre stuff from the standpoint of the old literary standards of quality. And it was produced in vast amounts by an industry that was emerging and fattening on mass literacy. Our work, our opportunity for the future is to deal with the evaluation of this literature of our roots and it's not going to be easy. There is a lot of it, like all of the birds in that house. Two centuries ago, a collector of what was important, the development of the reading public would almost certainly have concentrated on the great classical underpinnings of Western intellectual life. Books in Latin and Greek largely, the great histories, the cosmographies, the poets, the religious works in their earliest printed editions. In quality, in influence, there was no doubt about them. They were worthy of being collected, revered, and preserved. A century later, a century ago now, a great new field was coming into vogue, Americana. New world history was to some degree separate from Europe, or seemed to be. It was the experience of an emerging nation, obviously destined for wealth and power and enormously conscious of its own emerging. It valued the documentation of that experience and collections of Americana were built in private hands and private collecting became a way for new wealth in this country to express itself in a very socially acceptable way. Conscious of our history, we also became conscious of our emerging literature. 
distinct now somewhat from English literature, but not so distinct as to forget its ancestry. So great numbers of authors, very great authors, I should say, from both sides of the Atlantic were collected. And the passing of time was trusted to define greatness, quality. My mentor in this business was James Ford Bell of Minneapolis, founder of the library, which I've been curator all these years. And his mentor, I think, was Herschel V. Jones, heard of the Jones Collection of American and English Literature and History. Herschel Jones, in a way, defined the scope of rare book collecting in the United States during the first four decades of this century. And these well-identified rarities became steadily more rare as there became more Herschel Joneses and James Ford Bells as the number of wealthy people increased and they sought books to collect. Again, a socially acceptable way to spend your money and become a part of an elite in a community. The new wealth dispensing into new hands after mid-century created more and more collectors. And the old traditional fields could not accommodate them. There were not enough even orange canaries to go around. Old standards of what was rare, what was important, gave ground to admit authors of more recent vintage and events of more recent history. What was more, what was more American than the Civil War? Unless it might be the movement across the Trans-Mississippi West, cowboys, railroads, all of that. What was more important worldwide than science? Collectors began reaching beyond the obvious big names, looking for substance in hitherto unnoticed pamphlets. I remember well an article in AB by our late friend Ed Wolf, who was lamenting that no one was collecting or paying any attention to pamphlets of the American Revolution. This back about 1960. I think he cured that situation in about one week as we began scurrying about while the prices rose or before they rose too much. About 25, maybe closer to 30 years ago, Kenneth Nibensal, book, bookseller in Chicago, went bold with a catalog of strictly 18th century stuff. Here was somebody who was advertising himself as a quality rare book dealer now just an 18th century catalog. That was a brave thing to do. Well, it was very much in demand. The 18th century stuff went fast. It was not spectacular, but it was quickly in demand. Authors of the late 19th and early 20th century pointed us toward modern firsts, which now crowd the market. I don't know when the term modern first was coined, but I think it's surely within the last two decades. We didn't talk about modern firsts. And something, possibly a greater understanding of childhood through research in psychology, sent collectors hunting for those books that formed the foundation of their own bookish interests. Children's books became widely collected. Now these, most of these post-war collectors got old, and since book collecting is not a genetically inherited condition, there was a concern for what to do with the books. Tax laws made it convenient for both the collector and the curators to give the books to libraries. 
Many of these books in these new collections were not of themselves terribly rare, but they were collected, and the collection had an identity, just as surely as any one of the old books, the old type, had had an identity. So collections began pouring in, gobbling up vast linear feet of space, and bringing distinction to libraries which became brazenly acquisitive, and we were one of them. It was in the 1950s, I think, that the term special collections was invented. I'm sure it was not there when I started in 1953. Special collections. And into, into special collections came all of these special collections. Canaries of many hues, <clears throat> all of them good to have, it seemed, and very hard to turn down. They came to be housed in or near <clears throat> rare book collections, the old type, because they were special, often in fine condition, not to be circulated. Frequently, the same titles were on the shelves in the stacks <clears throat> in beat-up condition. And now here they were in their pristine condition, worthy of being preserved and being looked at seriously, probably for the first time. So books less than a century old, titles that may have had no particular notoriety when they were published or ever, became treasures because they were part of an important subject or author collection. The result of the creativity of a collector who knew the subject and the importance of each piece in the collection. <clears throat> and new subjects around which to collect <clears throat> spawned and grew. I recall an incident early in my career at Minnesota, back about 1953 or 54. There was a group of books on a shelf for consideration for discard. Shelf, you know, that long. Considered to be weeded. I believe they were about to be dumped and like to see that happen. They were not very attractive, and they were a collection of American temperance pamphlets, obviously of no literary value, and probably of no long-range historical value, considering our continued taste for booze. <laughs> so I volunteered to take them home, rather than see them go into the dump, for that seemed to be their fate tomorrow or the day after. I think my interest in them as a collection prompted Mr. Russell, the assistant director, there were no special collections librarians in those days. I think Mr. Russell said, if they are a collection, maybe we should keep them. And so he did. They went from the edge of oblivion, literally, into special collections. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not going to imply that our special collections or yours is an assemblage of ugly ducklings or colorless canaries, to continue the metaphor. But I would emphasize the collectedness of any subject-oriented group of books became a criterion that got serious consideration by those who were building libraries in those years. I recall coming upon a collection during a travel in England back about 1960, books gathered by a young Englishman during the 
two years he was on the Grand Tour in the 1790s. They were in a huge wooden box, sort of the size of a casket, probably. The box, I think, had probably not been opened since young Mr. Hume brought them home in 1796 or so. The books, too, I think, had not been opened, ever, perhaps, except for Mr. Hume when he bought the book, noted down the place and the price. You know, Venice, so many lira, whatever. Were they great books? Wonderful condition. The original gray and blue wrappers, every single one. Important books? Probably not. Were they influential upon the life of this young man? I doubt he ever read any of them. There's no evidence that they influenced him, and there is no evidence that he influenced anybody else. <laughs> but they were a collection reflecting the taste of a young gentleman on the Grand Tour. The same books offered two or three at a time in a, in a Quaritch catalog, let us say, would not have attracted anybody's attention, probably. But the fact that there were a couple of hundred of them in one place, all in pristine condition, yeah. I hasten to assure you that they are beautiful and I am still glad that I told the acquisitions librarian that there is a nice collection of books out there in East Anglia that you should take a look at. They're out of the box, but they take up a lot of space on the shelf. And of course, some collections take up more space than others. There is the author who is conscious above all things of his art who labors slowly, produces maybe half a dozen or ten books in a whole lifetime. He doesn't take up much space on the shelf. But they are good books. Then there is the formula writer, or simply the prolific, prolific producer, who develops a, a following and has a publisher at his elbow yapping at him to get out a book every year or more. Now, we are interested in the social impact of authors. Which of these authors has the greater impact, justifying a complete collection of first editions? If we cannot have it all, if the cage is too small, which will we choose, good writing or social acceptance? In the field of collecting I know something about, the only field of collecting I know anything about, really, is travel literature. The early travel literature authors had books that resulted from the travels. Marco Polo, Herodotus, John Mandeville, Columbus, Vespucci, Pigafetta, people like that. The book was the result of travels. By the late 19th century, this changed the book became the reason to travel. And so, shelves filled up with Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, Harriet Martineau, Mrs. Trollope, and Willard Glazier, and others. Modern collector of travel literature, therefore, must give serious thought. If you stake out travel literature as your scope, I dare say the cage will be too small. You better ask yourself what kind of travel, what period, what places.
what is the true significance of the author, to have a collection that is manageable rather than merely large. I'm saying I think it is time to emphasize quality at the expense of numbers sometimes, most often. Red canaries or nearly red canaries in limited fields. I know this goes against the cornerstone of much of our cultural assumptions. More is better. Quantity is what it's all about. If you aren't growing, you're dying, all this kind of thing. But there is something about special collections that justifies special treatment. And it ought to be their quality. Literary quality, historical importance, bibliographic significance. In our fast food supermarket culture, somebody must be looking after quality, and I believe within our professions, we should be the bastions of what is good and enduring, and not merely cages full of what was popular. We need to consider these things in the coming years with one eye on the economic and political scene of which we are a part. Cultural facilities like libraries tend to reflect the economies surrounding them. That is not news to anybody here. As we read about in the newspapers, remember last summer when I was here, I picked up a New York Times on my way at the airport and read about Connecticut can't keep its libraries open on weekends, can't raise enough money. That's what we're talking about. Let's look back 40 years when this big boom began. American economy was clearly dominant in the world. There was money for books. There was a lot of money for books. Places like Kansas and Texas and UCLA and Minnesota, out-of-the-way places not previously known for rare books, got into collection building in a big way. We built new libraries, new buildings in a lot of places, and very often one of the reasons was to have room for our special collections. The availability of funds was encouraging for further expansion. But by the 70s, we were tightening our belts. As the decline in the dollar gave us less money to play with in the international market, which is where the book trade is. In the 1980s, we've seen our supporting economy decline with respect to its global position the decline in federal support for social programs of all kinds has put great pressure on local economies, legislative and city budgets. We all know that. In Minnesota, we are spending about $2.19 per capita for books in public libraries. I believe that's higher than most states. But nobody is suggesting that it's enough, and nobody is even dreaming that it's going to be increased probably reduced. It is not easy in this situation to demonstrate a competitive need for public funds for rare books in these times, or for places to house them, or for people to care for them. We are in a mental climate of no new taxes. It's a religion in this country. And when we emerge from it, the causes that will inspire the larger taxes will be other things, homeless families, drug control, crime, poverty, education, perhaps, but it will likely mean more computers in classrooms 
not necessarily more rare books in libraries. So I believe the 1990s is a time when selectivity is called for to a degree we have not experienced it in the last 50 years, in buying or even in accepting gift collections. It is time for seeking quality people who will be able to deal with collections of materials or individual books in an intelligent fashion which relates the materials to the education programs and demonstrates their cultural significance. Who are these people? Some in this room. They're out there. They're out here. I see them each summer here at Columbia. Dan and I deal with them every time, every year. And there's a, there's a similarity. Uh, we hear them saying things about their struggle for space and staff. And the shortages in those aspects of our work reflect the quantity of stuff we have to deal with. The mortgage that has been put upon us by all of these yellow canaries. They're good things, mind you. I'm not saying they aren't. Like Mrs. Johnson, she couldn't get rid of the yellow ones. But if we keep gathering them and don't provide facilities for them, what will be the result? We are under pressure from our administrations to raise money, to continue the whole operation. I don't know of very many professions that are expected to live off the land as they practice their, uh, their business, their professions. Reference librarians don't have to raise money to buy reference books, I don't think. Rare book librarians are expected to raise money to buy rare books. So what is our vocation? Um, it may be well to ask ourselves that question now. What should we be doing? I would suggest that we should be collecting and protecting and conserving and interpreting the best stuff, what is good and what is lasting, as, it ex as expressed in books and manuscripts and related materials. And we must not be negligent about making the judgments. Somebody has to say what is good and lasting. And we are the people who have to do it. Sounds like a retreat from where we've been and where we think we are going. Then I suggest maybe at times it is well to retreat or at least to pause, ask ourselves where we are. Unlike other elements of our society, we cannot borrow to buy the illusion of expansion. We are not federal governments. We need the time to digest what we've been taking in during this first generation of special collections librarianship, to ponder what is educational, how we can make it useful in education. Here are some excerpts from an application of a librarian who wanted to attend this school last year. And each one of you who attends Dan in my class has written something like that almost every year some parts of this. Here it goes. My university was the recipient of a rare book collection 40 years ago. After organization, cataloging, and housing of this collection, it has been essentially ignored and inaccessible. A donor has recently provided us with funding to perform the necessary conservation to publicize the existence and availability of the collection. I hope to acquire the knowledge necessary to effectively direct an assessment of preservation needs provide or perform necessary conservation, describe the scope of the collection, and publish a guide. 
and make the existence and availability of the collection widely known. Sound familiar? Yeah, every year. And some of, some of you this year again. Most of us, I believe, can identify with all of that. We have to ask ourselves, if 40,000 volumes in bad shape, bad condition, is better than 20,000 volumes in good condition. Acquisition is the big excitement. I know I've, I've been doing it all these years. Started with 500 items and now I have 15,000. I know the excitement of laying in a, a lot of stuff. But are we doing our institutions a favor right now by increasing our holdings at a vast rate, the condition of which is a mortgage upon the future? and whose condition will only decline in our care unless we can do something about it. When are we ever going to get even in this conservation game? When will we be able to show an entire collection and not apologize for any item in it? Most of us are a long way from that. Most of us justify our existence by growth figures, holdings, and use. I would suggest that we give our energy, some of it, and money to quality interpretation of holdings, which should magnify the numbers of users and somehow the quality of users. By this I mean getting closer to the books and the people, being the mediator who brings them together. Not suggesting we give up acquisitions, but if the 1990s are no different from the previous four decades, we're just sort of doing like the federal government is doing, postponing the problems. Perhaps our greatest challenge will not be changing our emphasis. We know what the problems are. We know the cage is too small and that it's full of scruffy books that need repair, all of that. I think our biggest job is converting the unconverted, telling our directors that we need some convertibility of funds as between acquisitions and restoration and publication to get these collections in better shape and better use. We are the keepers of the library's treasure house. We need to treat our holdings like treasures. We are the ultimate resort of the highest quality of scholars. We need to meet them with quality books, quality service, quality understanding, quality everything. And we need to be upfront about it and not to be ashamed to say we are a bit elitist in the sense that we believe that the most important things need the most attention. It's no betrayal of our democratic passion to admit an aristocracy among books. It will be good for our culture if we do so. By the way, it may be good for librarians too. Back about the time that Oscar Ferkmans is writing that nasty letter to the New York Times from Minneapolis. Frank Walter, a great early librarian in Minnesota, wrote this, 1925. We as librarians should live our lives in a way that may promote the good of our own souls. We should live our lives in a way that would promote the good of our own souls. I would ask, what is better for your soul than living among the great authors, caring for the great books, listening to the voices 
that are important out of the past and making it possible for others to hear them also. I think that's our vocation for the 1990s and maybe for beyond. Thank you. Don't go away. First, I invite you to take a look at the exhibition outside if you've not done so, and if you do not have a catalog, to ask Jacqueline Glomsky at the back door for one, uh, which goes with the exhibition. There is a reception which immediately follows this lecture in any event at both ends of the hallway. Attenders of the reception are encouraged but not required to see the exhibition that lies between the two bars. <laughs> when Donald Farron and I first began teaching descriptive bibliography in the mid-80s in rare book school, we put together a reading list. I think it had about 12 pages, which we called a lifetime reading plan. It had a page on binding and a page on publishing and a page on printing and a page on type and a page on paper and a page on everything else we could think of. And we handed it out to several generations of students. About four years ago, Robin Hallwitz, who has himself taught in rare book school and is a 1977 graduate of the rare book program here, and who is an antiquarian bookseller in London, said, will you, for goodness sake, stop calling that miserable little list of basic books a lifetime reading plan? So I did. But I have a substitute for it. <laughs> because what do we find ourselves publishing but the syllabus to Tom Tansel's course Introduction to Bibliography. Now this is 99 pages of small type. And this certainly is the beginning of a lifetime reading plan. <laughs> I hope that Robin will accept it as such in any event. He's one of the few people I know who has ever any chance of actually working his way through such a list, if indeed he hasn't read most of them already. Another is Jack Parker, but you can never be certain. So we thought that we would give him a copy of this so he could start work, <laughs> as well as one of the more interesting books in the Tansel list, Humanists and Bookbinders, The Origin and Diffusion of the Humanistic Bookbinding, 1459-1559, the new Anthony Hobson book. Sorry. 